Good morning, welcome. Let us stand and hear from God's word. Philippians 4, Paul encourages us. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christians, in every circumstance, a reasonable response for us is to rejoice. So whether you come in this morning filled with fear and anxiety or with joy, rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Jesus, the Savior, reigns. So lift your hands, lift your hearts and your voices and rejoice. That is exactly the passage from Philippians that we need to start our service on Sunday. That's just the kind of song that we need to be singing together to start our Sunday. And this, a focus on Jesus, 
our Savior as King and Lord. It's just the way that we need to start our week. You can be seated. Welcome to Desert Springs Church, whether you're visiting for uh, the first time or you've been coming for a couple of years. Uh, we encourage you to reach out to us. Ask any questions about anything you've seen or heard in this service. One way you can do that is by email. You can email us at info at dscabq.com. Well, just like we need Sundays as a refresher to start the week, uh, we need uh, opportunities throughout the year um, for fellowship, for study, for gratitude, for worship corporately, things like men's or women's Bible studies or cause for praise, evening service of worship. One of those opportunities is coming up in two weeks. We'll do a Saturday seminar on Christology. So the Saturday part of that is it's a half day. We're done by lunchtime. The seminar part of it, in this case, again, is Christology. So that's just a fancy word for who Jesus is. Now, this is not a Jesus 101, so it's not like a birth and then a biography or an overview of his life. This is a deeper look at his relationship with the Father, his mission, um, his identity, and perhaps, importantly, how we incorporate all that into our personal walk and worship and devotional time with the Lord. We'll do that in person and streaming, so you need to sign up for the in-person event here in this room. You can do that by the website or the DSC app on your phone. Finally, in a room filled with uh, roughly 200 people and then many more by the streamed service, we're going to have a few dozen people that are not baptized, but they're believers. They put their faith in the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus. If that's you, you've not been baptized as a believer. Uh, we've got a class, I'll be teaching it by Zoom and um, you can do, take it from your home. We'll start a week from today on Sunday. It's four o'clock in the afternoon, runs for three weeks. That gets us ready for a baptism service later in April. So if you're interested, maybe not in signing up for the baptism on Sunday right away, but just learning about what baptism is, what the New Testament teaches it is, why it was so important to Jesus and the apostles, how we do it, then take that class so we can start that dialogue. And you can sign up for that as well on the website or on your phone. Please pray with me. Let's pray for our service. Father, help us to rejoice, to give thanks and sing in this service, to say, to sing, to feel in the deepest part of us. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. We ask that you would use this upcoming Saturday seminar to help us to worship Jesus better, deeper, and more often. And we ask that you would remind us, those of us who have been baptized and those who have not, that baptism is the mark of a Christian, the way that you've designed that we publicly identify with and proclaim the name of Jesus, that I belong to him. Give us a heart to praise you a heart and mind to praise you this morning and this week. Help us to do that even now and to continue to do that as we sing the praises of Jesus. In his name, amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer and in confession together. Oh, for a heart to praise my God a heart from sin set free 
God's people this morning, amen? Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Hickman. I'm uh, one of the elders here at DSC. Um, this morning, we want to take a few minutes to uh, pray for businesses, small businesses in particular, uh, that have been particularly hard hit by the consequences of coronavirus and the restrictions that have been um, levied on them by, by local authorities. So let's do that now. Let's bring these people and these businesses to the Lord in prayer. Kind and gracious Father, we give you thanks this morning for your careful and your constant provision. You have fulfilled your promise to care for us daily, to give us what we need, and you continue to remember us, your people, each and every day. 
Lord, which of us is not a recipient of your blessings? Lord, which of us is lacking in your tender mercies and your kindness and your favor? All of us here this morning, Lord, have been the objects of your preference. You've shown us partiality as your people. Lord, our cups overflow. Yet for some, Lord, this past 12 months has been especially difficult. For some, though, having their basic needs met, they've struggled and toiled to maintain their position at work, never mind get ahead. Some have been laid off or let go altogether. Many are small business owners or employees that work for small businesses. We know that these businesses have been particularly hard hit by our state's regulations and the uh, on and off again restrictions. I'm aware of some of these businesses, Lord, here represented this morning, and I'm sure there are many more that I don't know about. Some of them have had to let employees go, or, or two, or three, or more. I know of a few such businesses here this morning, Lord, that have not been able to meet their financial obligations for lease, or office space, or for equipment, or vehicles, or supplies. Some of these businesses have taken out loans to make personal uh, to, to make payroll, rather, for their employees or have been unable to make payroll altogether. Some of these business owners have selflessly not drawn a paycheck in order to pay their employees, and some of them for almost a year. Lord, would you continue to show yourself faithful to those folks who have looked to you to supply their needs, who have often looked to the needs of others as more important than their own, who have put their hope in you despite earthly circumstances that might cause them distress and discouragement. Thank you for caring for these saints, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness to them. Thank you for helping them to keep their eyes fixed on you. Thank you for holding them fast. In what was only 12 months ago, uh, a very prosperous and growing economy, Lord, many businesses find themselves barely able to keep the doors open. Your word tells us, Lord, that you give and you take away, that you wound and that you bind up, that you shatter, but that you also heal. Father, help those small business owners and those who work for small business owners who are suffering financially, who are perhaps downcast, who might be distraught, those who are suffering, those who are even just concerned for what the future might look like. Lord, help those folks. Help them to see this season as a time not just of trial, but of your chastening, of your loving discipline even, of correction, of sanctification. Please help these business owners and employees alike to keep their gaze affixed on the Savior, to remember his perfect sacrifice on their behalf, to remember his loving care for them. Lord, would you help them? Would you help them to rejoice in you, help them in everything to give thanks, Guard their hearts and their minds in peace in Christ Jesus. Father, help those that are struggling to reflect often on your provision for them and their families. Help them to recount your many kindnesses to them. Lord, help them too to, to, to bask in remembrances of your faithfulness to them in months and years past. Lord, help them to do this as a, as a testimony to your greatness and for your renown and Lord, would you help those that perhaps are suffering less to see these folks' example and to give you glory and honor for that example. 
and to come alongside them that are suffering and to encourage them, to remind them of your promises and of your loving kindness. Father, thank you in advance for doing these things. Thank you for using trials and struggles to both draw us closer to you, but also to continue in the building of your church. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us dependent upon you. Lord, keep us close. Lord, give us neither poverty nor riches. Feed us with the food that is needful for us, lest we be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest we be poor and steal and profane the name of our God. Father, magnify yourself here this morning. Make much of yourself here today. Enable us to sing your praises here this morning, to pray your praises, to hear your word boldly proclaimed to us and to receive it implanted. Awaken our cold and callous hearts, Lord. We ask these things this morning, Lord, in your great name and for our good in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and continue to sing of our trust. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take him at his word Just to rest upon his promise Just to know the saith the
Lord Jesus, it is sweet to trust you. And oh, how we need to trust you more. Oh, how we need your help to trust you greater. Help us, Lord. Help us to trust your word. It's been proven true and trustworthy in our lives time and time again. Would, be, would this be another one of those moments, Lord, where you prove the trustworthiness and trueness of your word to us once again, as you speak, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13 in the Old Testament, the last chapter of Nehemiah, as we come to our final Sunday in this study of the book of Nehemiah. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin a new series in the New Testament book of Galatians. And by the way, if you've ever been curious how we determine what our next book of the Bible will be to go through as a church on Sunday mornings, uh, I wrote a newsletter article on that. I believe the newsletter uh, will be out tomorrow. Is that right, Randy? November, uh, the first of the month, every month. Uh, if you're not on the e-newsletter list, you can sign up for it by going to the bottom of our front page and uh, at the website there, there's uh, at the bottom of the front page several things you can subscribe to. We'd encourage you to sign up for that. And one of the things you'll see in this month's newsletter is an article on how we determine what uh, sermon series is next, at least some factors. But that's, that's next week, Galatians. And then this week, again, we finish Nehemiah. And with Nehemiah 13 on my mind in this past week, I've been doing some reading and rereading on revival Revivals. Uh, when you hear that word revival, you might think old-fashioned revival. You might picture a church hosting uh, a series of events outside under a tent. You might have heard that phrase, walking the sawdust trail. Well, well, maybe clear those kind of things from your mind, at least for now, for our purposes because at their best, revivals are simply these seasons when God's kingdom is advanced in new and fresh and heightened ways. It's season, a season when God's kingdom is advanced in new and fresh and heightened ways. Ray Ortland, in his book on revival, he, he opens the book with a definition he says, revival is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. It's when God hits the fast-forward button, Ortland says. Revival is a time of greater clarity for God's people, greater clarity about God himself and his grace and grandeur and greater clarity about ourselves and our sin and so it's it's a season of renewed confession of sin 
A revival is a time of new and fresh and deeper consecration or commitment of our lives to God. Revival is a, a time when the church sees new conversions to Christ. And there is great celebration before the Lord for it all. There's sweet communion with God in a, a new and special way. Of course, we find revivals like this in the Bible. You can uh, think of Exodus 15, that song at the sea where Israel has just been rescued through the parting of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has just been decimated, and they sing. They have a worship service there. Or you can think of Acts 2. These aren't the only two in our Bibles, but they're just a couple of examples. Acts 2 is probably the most important, the most profound revival you can find in all the Bible. It's the birth of the church. It's that time when from one sermon, 3,000 were converted to Christ and were baptized and joined the church that day. In Acts 2, there's that visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit's coming and his indwelling. It was a special time, and the effects of it are, are long-lasting still today. There are revivals in history. Perhaps most famously would be the Protestant Reformation. That is a revival, at least we think so as Protestants. There's also the Great Awakening in the U.S., uh, which happened in the early 18th century and was followed by a second Great Awakening. Again, these are just samples of many different times in which God simply showed up. God worked in a new and powerful and special way. And I'm reminded this week of the need to review those times when God has shown up in these special ways, to smile as we read about them, to long for them once again, to long for another one in our lifetime, to pray for that, to pray that God would do something big, not for, not for our amusement, not for the fame of a, a church or for something to happen merely in one city and not the other, but for God and his fame and his glory and for our good. We want to pray for that. We want to watch for it. And may it be that God would bring something special in our lifetime or our kids' lifetime. But I was also reminded this week, especially from Nehemiah 13, that there are well, I'm not exactly sure what to call them. You could call them revivals, sorta. Revivals, not really. Revivals, we thought so, but apparently not. Revivals, or so it seemed. And that's apparently what we have in the days of Nehemiah, now that the story is told as we come to the last chapter. There were some high points in what came before. Revival was there. It had arrived, or so it seemed. It was revival almost. Revival not yet, apparently. You see, that's the only way to explain the ending in chapter 13, an ending which is anticlimactic, an ending which is a downer. It's not how Disney would write the ending to one of its movies. It doesn't end happily ever 
after. In fact, if we were in charge of telling the story of Nehemiah, we might have ended the book before chapter 13. At a number of points, we might have ended with chapter 6, the completion of the wall. There, that's what Nehemiah came to do. There's a nice, neat story. The walls are down. The walls are built. There's a record in chapter 7 of the people involved. On to the next book. We might have ended with that beautiful corporate gathering that happens in chapter 8 where they're all assembled under the word. We said that that's a worship service about as descriptive and beautiful as any you find in the New Testament, let alone the old. We might have ended the story with the confession of sin that followed that in chapter 9. That was great. That was important. That was needed. We might have ended the story with the covenant renewal that takes place in chapter 10. Remember from chapter 10, there was that threefold recommitment. The people said, we will not give our daughters in marriage to worshipers of foreign gods anymore. We will not neglect to observe the Sabbath anymore. We will support with our tithes and offerings the, the temple ministry and all that it requires. And chapter, chapter 10 ends with that great line, verse 29 of chapter 10, we will not neglect the house of our God. What a high point. Second only to the high point of chapter 12, which Chase led us in last week. Remember two choirs singing antiphonally upon the wall, heading out in different directions and meeting once again in the middle. Verse 43 of chapter 12, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And instead, the book of Nehemiah ends like this, not like that. Read on with me in chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, 
So the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should, not, it should be shut And gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Well, in all that, I see five problems in this chapter, five matters which I think got in the way of genuine and lasting revival. The first is the problem of legalism. In the first three verses, it's the problem of legalism. And it's not obvious, at least at first read, that legalism is the problem in these verses. But bear with me, I think it is. Reading and hearing from the law one day, as it says, and this is coming from Deuteronomy 23, where they had been reading, they read of the Ammonite and Moabite curses. In Deuteronomy 23, there it's actually summarizing events that took place in Numbers 23 and 24. So to get the detailed picture of all this, you've got to read Deuteronomy 24 in Numbers 23 and 24 to see the details. But the short of it is this. In the days of being nomadic people, in the days of Moses, in the days of Numbers and Deuteronomy, in those days, the Israelites needed to pass through Ammonite and Moabite territory. And so they offered those people gifts to pass through and receive basic hospitality, these were all just basic courtesies of the days. But the Ammonites refused, and the Moabites went one step further by trying to get one of their own prophets, one of Israel's prophets, Balaam, to pronounce a curse upon his own people. And of course, he could not issue a curse on his own people because God had already pronounced blessing upon his people many times over, and because prophets don't speak their own blessings and curses. They speak God's blessings and curses. And so though the Moabites wanted Balaam to speak a curse on the Israelites, notice verse 2, it summarizes there, God turned the curse into a blessing. And he cursed, instead, the Ammonites and the Moabites. It says back in Deuteronomy 24, sorry, 23, it says that no Ammonite or Moabite to the 10th generation could be admitted to the assembly of God's people. Well, the people of Nehemiah's day took that information from those passages and they apply it, but apply it too rigidly too thoroughly. They seem to overlook that there were exceptions to this curse elsewhere in the Bible. Maybe most notably is the example of Ruth in the book of Ruth. That's a beautiful story of a Moabite woman who famously said, I want your God to be my God. And she came not only into the family of Boaz, but she came into the family of God. And the people of Nehemiah 13 not only seemed to overlook that, but they also apparently applied the curse 
put on Ammonites and Moabites universally. They apply it to all people. Notice verse 3. All those of foreign descent they separate from. So what was a real and recurring problem? The marrying of Israelites to those of foreign descent. Problematic, as we'll see. We'll come back to it. It's at the end of our chapter. Problematic because they have foreign gods that they're committed to. That was, that was a real problem. And that real problem was met with, apparently, legalism. Legalism is going above and beyond what God's word prescribes or forbids. It's adding to God's commandments. So they took what God applied to Moabites and Ammonites specifically, and they extended it to every people group around them. And they missed that Deuteronomy 23 seems, yes, it seems rigidly strict, but there, uh, there had been gracious exceptions to the rule. Again, Ruth. Ruth was, was not only welcomed into the family of God, but she was the great-grandma of King David and hence provided part of the lineage of the Messiah. Jesus, a Moabite, did. They, they had that information, at least the, the Davidic part, the Ruth part of it. Now, legalism is a real problem. This isn't a petty mistake. Legalism like this puts words in God's mouth. It presumes to speak for him. It presumes to know better than he knows. It presumes to speak better than he has spoken. That's dangerous. I mean, that's satanic stuff. That's, that's the serpent in the garden kind of thing. And it's sneaky, too. Legalism is sneaky because it looks pious. It looks extra devoted. It looks super spiritual. And yet not many things squelch the movement of God, the revival that might be taking place like legalism does. And so sometimes our greatest hope is just that blessed principle of verse 2, God turned the curse into a blessing. That's what God did in the days of Balaam. That's what God did time and time again. You just think of small examples like David's little slingshot, so small yet in God's doing, it was so powerful and effective. Or examples like uh, the, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, they got it. And as they bring it through their land, it just keeps spreading boils and boils and boils and boils. The Israeli army's not needed one bit. God just wipes out Philistines of his own doing. God turned the curse into a blessing. And of course, we as Christians should think of the cross as the supreme example. God turned the curse into a blessing. The curse of the cross, there Jesus became a curse for us. And there he gives life and blessing. This is how our God works. We'll come back to that 
toward the end, that great hope that we have. Secondly, there's the problem of desecration. A problem of desecration. Now, before we get to that, notice in verse 6 that we're given some help on the timeline of these events. Apparently, Nehemiah had been governor in Jerusalem for about 12 years. That's what we learn from verse 6. And after 12 years, he had gone back to the king of Persia. So much has happened in the narrative of Nehemiah between chapter 1 and now chapter 13 that it's easy to forget that he was essentially on loan to Jerusalem from a Persian king. So he returned after 12 years in Jerusalem, and we're not told how long he was back in Persia, but after some time, it says, maybe a year or two, he returns to Jerusalem, and what would he hope to find? More pictures, more vignettes, more scenes like chapter 8, being under the word, chapter 9, prayer, chapter 10, covenant commitment, more of the obedience they promised in chapter 10, more of the grand celebration of chapter 12. He would hope that all that was still there, still intact, still thriving, but instead he finds a temple desecrated with the presence of a guy named Tobiah. I say a guy named Tobiah, but if you've been reading this carefully, you know Tobiah. This is the same nasty dude of chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 6 and multiple references in each of those chapters. He, along with a guy named Sanballat, who were both, they were both governors in the surrounding regions and not Jews, they were Gentiles. They have opposed the Israelites at every turn in this story. They've tried to kill Israelites when they were working on the wall. When that didn't work, they turned to mockery and jeering. When that didn't work, they tried a smear campaign against Nehemiah. Tobiah is a bad dude. But he's hung around enough and he's persisted at manipulation and working people enough He's got some traction here. He got the priest to let him have a residence within the temple. If you know the temple structure, there's the outer court. There, Gentiles are allowed. There's the inner court. There, that's, when, that's where Jews go and they hand over their animal sacrifices and other offerings. And then there's the holy of holies where no one else goes but the high priest. This is somewhere in the inner court. He has his own place inside the temple. A large room which, was, which had been used for the storing of grain and all the tools and all the materials needed for sacrifices and worship and offerings. That storage room was cleared out to make a spacious pad for wicked Tobiah. When Sarah and I lived in Oxford uh, in the late 90s, we were friends with a, a fellow student there who, whose father was the Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford. That's only one of two queen-appointed professorships at Oxford and Cambridge, so it's a big deal. 
the Regis Professor of Divinity, resides within in Oxford College, Christ Church College in Oxford. And by the way, Christ Church Oxford is uh, where many of the Harry Potter scenes are filmed, if you've seen those movies. And so if you're trying to picture what, what I'm describing here, uh, you might imagine some of that scenery. Well, one evening we were privileged to get a tour of the professor's residence. Imagine a 3,000 square foot flat in a kind of Hogwartsian little corner of Christ Church, Oxford. It's a strange setting for a place to live, a beautifully strange setting, a mysteriously strange setting. It feels like a, a bit of Narnia. Uh, it feels like someone found an unused corner of Christ Church, Oxford, and, and uh, tried to set up home, hoping no one would notice. But the Regis professor is there by all rights. He's rightly there. He should be there. That's where the Regis professor resides, and he is there by queen appointment. Not so Tobiah. He might have the priest's permission, but he doesn't have the God-given right to be on the temple grounds. And there's double trouble with Tobiah's residence at the temple. He has no right to have any presence in the temple, but the materials for God's worship had been displaced from the temple in order to give this wicked man a place to live. And on top of that, there's triple trouble. On the practical level, this puts Israel's cunning enemy right smack dab in the middle of everything prime real estate for him to continue to work and worm his way in among God's people to manipulate and control and thwart. And we should also be thinking of the problem that's behind the problem here. The desecration of the temple is a little further down the river. There's an earlier problem, at least logically, and that's the, the problem of compromise, the priest's compromise. And that's the lesson for us. Eliashib, the priest, sacrificed, displaced, sacred things for family, for going with the flow, to keep happy the present mover and shaker in the land. Revival will never prove to be the genuine work of God when we compromise God's ways at the altar of, for instance, politics. Politics. Or pragmatism. True revival doesn't need the kind of pragmatism that displaces holy things with whatever else seems powerful and persuasive at the moment. I remember getting a call from a New Mexico senator's office once asking if uh, this senator-to-be, senator not one of our current senators, but one that was elected senator, if he could come and speak to our church. I said, no, I'm sorry. He said, well, how about a little something after church? You know, the service ends. This is sometimes something we do. And, and he would speak to whoever wants to stick around 
no, no. I said, he's welcome to come to church. And he did. And we met, and it was a nice time. But you can feel the temptation. Ooh, senator. Huh? But may it never be. May the line stay clear. And thankfully, Nehemiah would have none of it. So once he arrived and saw what was going on, he was very angry. He threw out Tobiah and all his furniture and put things back aright. Thirdly, there's the problem of stinginess going on in verses 10 to 14. There's stinginess. And if the problem of the previous section was one of leadership, the problem of this section is one of laity. They're not giving the contributions that are needed for the temple ministry. I alluded to it already. Remember, back in chapter 10, how the people so adamantly and so thoroughly said that they would provide the tithes and offerings that God had prescribed to fund the whole temple priestly ministry. It's a big deal. It costs a lot. It needs funding. And they were aware of all of it. They listed all of the tithes and offerings back in chapter 10 before just summarizing it. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well, verse 11 of chapter 13. Nehemiah says, I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Lack of funds and Offerings and provisions from the people meant that the temple leaders and the singers, they just simply gave up. They went back home to their fields. They had to make a living. They had to eat. And were the people, when the people did not give what they said they would give, they went back home and there was no, there was no, dare we say, for a moment, for a time, for a season, there's no religion. I mean, this is the hub of the wheel of God's plan at this time, the temple, the sacrifices, the priests, and their home. They're working the rows of their gardens because the people will not provide. And we too today, we, we don't have the same tithes and offerings. We don't have a priestly system. But there is the spread of God's kingdom through local churches like this and missionaries like ours in North Africa or Guatemala that need funding. They need money. They need support. That's just how it works. And so Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that every Christian is to give sacrificially and with a kingdom mind and strategically and worshipfully, and cheerfully, not begrudgingly. On the one hand, we should remember that God doesn't need our money. The Bible at times speaks to that issue. God has the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need your 10%, your 30%, whatever it is you give. He doesn't need it. And some of you need to hear that. And some of you on the other hand, need to hear that God in his wisdom, mysteriously, he has chosen to fund the ministry of his kingdom and the spread of the gospel in the world 
and the building of his church. He's chosen to fund that with his people's generosity. Isn't that wild? He's chosen to fund it with what you give, however big, however small. That's between you and the Lord. Give sacrificially, give happily, give strategically, thoughtfully. That's between you and the Lord, how much? But know that God has chosen to fund the ministry of building the church and spreading the kingdom and spreading his glory farther, broader, and deeper with his people's generosity, with your own generosity. The fourth problem, though, is one of the Sabbath. There's the problem of Sabbath breaking, verses 15 to 22. Instead of resting on the seventh day as God prescribed in the Ten Commandments, and as the people committed that they would do back in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, Instead, look at verse 15. They're working the wine presses on the Sabbath. Verse 16, they're buying and selling all kinds of goods on the Sabbath. And when confronted, well, they start doing their buying and selling on the Sabbath outside the city walls. They're sneaky about it. Nehemiah has to block the gates, verse 19 has to block the people from coming and going at the gates on the Sabbath because they're coming and going with stuff to sell and stuff that they bought. Now, we've covered the Sabbath on several occasions, uh, really over the last few different uh, sermon series. The Sabbath has come up. We covered it in talking about Matthew 5, if you want to find that on our website. Uh, Back when we were in Exodus 31, we gave a whole Sunday to thinking of the Old Testament, both in its Old Testament context and its New Testament relevance. And it was just a a couple of weeks ago that we saw it again in Nehemiah 10. So I said this then, and will only briefly say it again today, that I believe that the Sabbath goes through a kind of transformation with the coming of Christ. That Old Testament day of physical rest with Christ, it gives way to a person and a person who offers spiritual rest and a rest of invitation. It's the gospel to rest in him. Christ is our rest. He is our Sabbath. That's what the gospel is. It's to come to him and give up on self Give up on works, trust completely on him, trust that he worked for us. The Old Testament Sabbath, we learn from Colossians, is a, it was a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, that aside, that caveat aside, and sticking with Nehemiah 13 and its historical covenantal context, there's still some lessons for us here. There's once again a problem behind the problem of Sabbath breaking. Behind the problem of Sabbath breaking is the problem of what? Can you imagine? Love of money. Stuff. Wanting more stuff. You made good money on Friday. Uh, the Gentile neighbors are saying, let's do that same deal on Saturday. 
What are you going to do? Love of money, acting just like the world and how the world relates to things and possessions, not trusting God for needed provision, but instead depending on self, milking his calendar for everything we can get from it. The root problem in all that is materialism, consumerism, Of course, God hasn't made us immaterial beings. We are material beings. We have material stuff. He knows that we are consumers. We consume and we are customers by necessity. But these things are not the sum total of our being. They don't dominate us like these things dominated the Jewish weekly calendar in days of Nehemiah 13. It's a scary reality to read Revelation 18, to read of this apocalyptic, metaphorical judgment on the whore Babylon, this thing, this this entity, and it looks a lot like everyday American life. Buying, selling, collecting, liking, Storing up, looking pretty, on and on it goes. The Lord doesn't presume we would get rid of all of our stuff, but the Lord does presume, as he told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, those who are rich in this present life shouldn't be haughty. They shouldn't trust in their riches. They should use it for God's kingdom while they enjoy freely everything he's given to enjoy. The problem of Sabbath breaking is really a problem of loving money and things too much. And on that front, may God help us. May God keep us from it. Because nothing will get in the way of genuine revival. Nothing will get in the way of a supernatural work of God as when we co-opt it for our financial, our material purposes and benefits. And fifth, the fifth problem is the problem of intermarrying. The problem of intermarrying. We come back once again to this old recurring problem of God's people marrying those of a different faith a different faith than those who call on Yahweh as their one and only God. That's the issue here. We again need to say, as we did when we were in chapter 10, the issue here is not first and foremost about ethnic purity, but about spiritual purity. Again, we dealt with this when we were in chapter 10, so I don't want to belabor the point now or draw out all of the implications. We even did a podcast in addition to the sermon which covered this, and you can find that in our website. But but the point here in chapter 13 now is that what had been a problem in Israel's history and what had been a problem for those who spent 70 years in Babylon and then returned to Jerusalem now with foreign wives, a problem that Ezra was talking about chapter after chapter in his book before Nehemiah, a problem still in Nehemiah's day. 
that was addressed and apparently repented over, at least for a time in chapter 10, is now still as much a problem as ever. And so it's been, what, 25, 30 minutes since I read these verses. Let's read some of them again. Look at verse 23. In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah, only the language of each people. The language problem isn't ultimately one of linguistic purity and preservation. The language problem is one of Bible ignorance. It's a Bible problem. God has communicated himself in a Hebrew Bible, and these are people who can't even hear the Hebrew Bible and understand it. That's a problem. It's a problem that has a, its effects in intaking the Bible, but it has its root, you could say, in going after women of a different faith of a different kind. I confronted them, verse 25. I made them take an oath. You will not give your daughters to their sons. He uses in verse 26 the example of Solomon. This is what Solomon did. This was Solomon's undoing. You can read about it in 1 Kings 11. If that doesn't, if that doesn't ring a bell, 1 Kings 11, you're due for a reread on 1 Kings 11. And while you're at it, read 1 Kings 10 right before it because 1 Kings 10 is the highest point in, from one angle. It's the highest point of Old Testament victory and celebration and glory. And in 1 Kings 11, foreign women turned Solomon's heart away from the Lord. And that is what brought upon a judgment of God's people God separating from one kingdom, two kingdoms. He divided the kingdom. He broke it in half because of Solomon's sin to go after other gods, going after other gods because he had gone after foreign women. It's a big problem. And that's why Nehemiah is so frustrated Is he too frustrated? That's something we got to ask about this chapter. Nehemiah has been, he's been a great example for us in this book. Great example of prayer. Great example of leadership. Is he a great example in this chapter? Well, his zeal for the things of God is undeniable and in some ways commendable. He's prepared to be the lone man in the city who will stand with God and not compromise. He's the one guy in the city who will put things aright. He's willing to confront sin, damn the consequences. Who cares what others think? All that's commendable. But his zeal here is pretty severe. And he does some things that you wouldn't find Jesus exactly teaching his followers to do or Paul teaching pastors that this is how you lead people who sin. 
It's difficult to say that Nehemiah is exemplary in every way in this chapter. He pulls out people's hair, verse 25. He speaks curses upon them, and he beats them. I do not recommend that. (laughs) When one struggles, you who are stronger, restore the weaker. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us to handle sin this way, Old Testament or new. How about this phrase, this repeated prayer that Nehemiah keeps offering? Remember me, O God, verse 14 and 22 and 31. He's done it before, now three times in this chapter. Remember this thing that I've done. That sounds funny to us. That doesn't sound like a guy who totally gets grace. It sounds what we call meritorious, like he's presenting his works before God, hoping God will receive them and receive him. That's probably too far. It's, it's probably not that. It probably flows out of God's covenantal steadfast love, as is referred to in verse 22. It's probably nothing different than in Psalm 90, where Moses prays, establish the work of our hands. Establish it. But this repeated, remember me, O God, this final word, remember me, O my God, for good, I think it has a hint of frustration to it. I suspect that it reflects a man grasping for hope in days when hope seems about gone. So what should we make of this strange ending then? What should we make of Nehemiah's example? What should we make of Nehemiah, the ending in the book? Well, in many ways, as we've said before, it's in many ways the end of the Old Testament. It's not the end of the Old Testament in our Bibles, but it is the end of the story. It's probably recording the last events of the Old Testament. That tells us that more is needed More is still to come. This is not the end of the story. And that's good, isn't it? The Old Testament ends with a lot left undone. I mean, before Nehemiah's day, there were prophets like Jeremiah saying, we need a whole new covenant. We need God to forgive sins in total. We need God to write his law upon our hearts to change our hearts. Ezekiel 36 said, we need new hearts altogether. God's got to do heart transplant. Old, dead, cold heart, out, beating, obedient heart, in. Zechariah, a prophet preceding Nehemiah's day, he foretold of a day when the city wouldn't need walls anymore That would just get in the way of all the people coming in, coming in, coming in. And who's coming in? According to Zechariah chapter 8, it's the nations, the peoples. And so the city wouldn't work with walls. Well, that is left undone, to say the least, by the end of Nehemiah. There has to be a sequel. There has to be another act after Nehemiah. And can you just pause right now to have compassion on 
those of Judaism without Christ, those who have gone 2,400 years since the days of Nehemiah without any more information, without any further revelation. Pray for them. And thank God that we live on this side of the coming of Christ. Thank God we've heard the rest of the story. Thank God we've read in the Gospels of Jesus who comes and welcomes Jew and Gentile alike if they'll come to him in faith and trusting him alone. We read of Jesus who says of the temple, the physical structure, uh, tear that down in three days and I will build it again in three days. Tear it down, I will build it again. And John says in John 2, he was referring to his body the temple. He is the temple. He is the dwelling place of God now on this side of the cross and resurrection. And so the priestly system, he, he takes care of all that. He balls it up. He fulfills it. He embodies it. He is it. He's the sacrifice. The sacrifices go away, no longer needed. Hence, there's no temple. There's no altar. There's no storehouse for all the priestly stuff. He's it. He's everything. It's all fulfilled in him. The forgiveness of sins taken care of on the cross. He bore that curse. He took the curse and turned it into a blessing. And that ushered in a whole new covenant, a whole new era with, with grand promises that the old just couldn't, couldn't accomplish. It's not that there wasn't forgiveness of sins. It wasn't that no one was saved. But there's a new covenant and a new heart. And the story doesn't have to end with just this thud, with just frustration, with merely saying, it's got to stop. When will it end? When will more come? More has come. Jesus has come. And so much has changed. And if you're not yet a Christian, we invite you into the whole saving package of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, restoration, reconciliation, communion with him. And we'll tell you as well that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean it's all easy, doesn't mean there isn't more to the story still. We're still awaiting a new heaven and a new earth. We're waiting a whole new creation. There is more to come. This act that we're in was better than the last, but it's not the final one yet. But as sure as it went from old covenant to new, and just as Christ was promised and then came, so the new heaven and the new earth will come at the coming of Christ. I don't know when, but we know it's sure. It's never been more sure. It's never been more needed. And so we have some vague familiarity with something like Nehemiah 13 because we're not done yet. He's not done yet. There is still more to come. And while we wait for the consummation of a new heaven and a new earth, we ask for God to give us just a little bit more right now. 
revival. Lord, would you do it? Would you give us just a taste of it? Perhaps in this person's physical healing right now? Perhaps in the reconciliation of this broken marriage right now? Perhaps in the salvation of my wayward child right now? Lord, would you bring it? Would you come? Would you do it? Would you give us more more of yourself? Lord Jesus, would you build your church? We know you will. Would you just add an addition this week? Would you just strengthen it with some more anchors this week? Ortland said, revival is the season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. It's when God hits the fast forward button. It's when he puts his church in the microwave and heats us up faster than usual. Let's pray the Lord would do it. Lord, We don't want to get in the way of what you're doing. Help us. And Lord, let us not worry too much about ourselves because you can overcome anything. You're the God who overturns curses and turns them into blessing. We thank you for this and for the hope that we have beyond the here and now the hope we have in Christ's coming again when we will feast with him forever, when sin will be no more, when we will be fully right with one another, when all will be put aright in this still broken world. We long for it. And again, we say, in the meantime, Lord, give us just a little bit more of a sampling of what's to come this week, this month, this year. Sometime, please, Lord. Amen. Let us stand and respond.
Will you be with Christ in that great feast in the end? I pray so. Uh, every vow we've broken and betrayed, but he is the source of that hope. So you can't do it in your own strength. You can't work it your way to him. You, you can't vow and resolve your way to, to rightness and fitness before him. But if you come humbly to Christ and him alone, he gives grace and grace to the uttermost. If we can be of help to you today in that regard to know this Savior, we would love to. Let us know how we can help. Christians, let's leave this place with great joy, with great confidence. We have such great hope in Christ's coming again. He came once, he'll come again, and we rest assured in that now, praying that he'll give us just a little bit more of what's to come in days ahead. I close with this blessing from 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. If you believe that, say amen. 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 You're dismissed.